The hour to which the podcast adjourned having arrived, the podcast is now in order. Let's gavel in for this week's State House Takeout with the reporters on top of Beacon Hill at the State House News Service. Here's Sam Doran. And we're back at it again with Colin Young, Chris Lasinski, and Matt Murphy on another Friday afternoon takeout from Beacon Hill. Hi, folks. Howdy. Happy Friday. Same to you. For our listeners, Sam is wearing a tie today. It's a very rare occurrence for a Friday afternoon, but he's... It's looking real, real dressed up for today's podcast. Oh, I thank you. I always try to put on my, my best attire for uh, these auspicious occasions. Um, we uh, we were talking a lot last week about holidays, uh, Halloween and Christmas and all that stuff. Um, and I've seen a lot of pictures on social media this week of Christmas trees already going up at Fannel Hall and Macy's down in Downtown Crossing and. We hear a lot about the Christmas creep, right? About the holiday season gradually moving closer and. I suppose, Colin, you might say that we might have another piece of this uh, holiday season creep coming up next week. Uh, the b- <laughs> what are you at? You're, you're wondering. Um, well, you might recall. I hope this doesn't require me to come up with more Dickens references because I might be tapped out. <laughs> I, I won't rely too much on that. Don't worry. Um, but uh, you may recall that the um, now three-month ban on sales of vaping products in Massachusetts has been set to expire on Christmas Eve. And uh, there it is. There it is. That magic day uh, might be coming sooner for folks who vape medical marijuana products. Right, Colin? Uh, because it sounds like it might be this, tu- this coming Tuesday uh, that that expires for them. Um, what did we learn this week? Yeah, it could be. Uh, nothing is set in stone. But what we learned this week uh, was a Superior Court judge ruled in favor of medical marijuana patients who had intervened in the uh, legal challenge to the governor's vaping ban. The patients had argued that when the legislature rewrote the marijuana laws in 2017 and required the transfer of the medical marijuana program from the Department of Public Health to the Cannabis Control Commission, that the legislature uh, explicitly gave all authority to regulate marijuana to the CCC and gave DPH uh, merely a collaborative role or sort of advisory role. So the patients had argued that DPH couldn't ban the, the, the sale of um, any products for medical marijuana patients uh, because that is uh, something that only the CCC can do. And Superior Court Judge uh, Douglas Wilkins agreed with them this week and uh, said that unless the CCC takes action before then, medical marijuana patients will be able to buy vaping products uh, as of 12.01 uh, p.m. next Tuesday. 12.01 p.m.? Correct. Just in the afternoon. That's right. Okay. One minute afternoon. One minute afternoon. All right. Don't don't hear that too often. So, Chris, you were over at the CCC on Thursday when they sought to respond to this. And uh, what happened there? I was. Uh, basically, what happened is they decided not to uh, take up the ban and continue it, uh, basically allowing this to expire on Tuesday, but laying out possible options to implement future regulations. So it was kind of a, an inaction that left open the door for, for future action. The CCC's executive director, Sean Collins, said that he's leaning toward a quarantine of oil-based cartridges, not any uh, uh, medical marijuana vaping products that use flour, but the ones that use oil oil pods. 
Um, but that being said, he wouldn't commit to doing that. He wouldn't lay out a timeline for doing that. Commissioners themselves uh, adopted a motion basically reaffirming his authority to take administrative action if he sees fit, but uh, declining to actually implement any new emergency regulations as of right now. Oh, okay. So he has the authority without a vote of the commission to to take, what, what would that be, like an emergency action? So, something like that. And the the phrase we're using quarantine mm. uh the way he explained it and colin can jump in here is basically taking some products off shelves where there is a concern to study them and make sure that there is no issue at the core here and that they're safe for consumers before eventually putting them back out yeah so what this could mean is uh medical marijuana patients may not be able to go into a, a store next tuesday and buy vape pods they may be able to buy vaporizers uh that that uh use actual marijuana flour and vaporize that, but the oil cartridges may not be available if the CCC goes in the quarantine route. But what that would do is is sort of separate it from the governor's vape ban, which is going through uh, legal challenges and the emergency regulations process. But if the CCC were to quarantine these products, it sort of takes it onto a different track and puts it uh, under the CCC's authority. Yeah, and then those quarantines wouldn't be subject to whatever further legal processes uh, Baker's ban faces. Exactly. Yeah. Um, do we know yet when the CCC is meeting next week? Uh, I don't believe they are. This is something oh. that, uh, uh, as I understand it, doesn't require uh, the commission to get together and vote. Uh, it's something that the executive director would be able to do administratively. They, they did, uh, you know, there was some discussion at Thursday's meeting about, um, you know, whether the commission would need to come in in an emergency meeting if this ban does end up lifted on Tuesday. You know, there's just so many moving pieces right now. The administration appealed the, the Judge Wilkins's order. So, you know, if the, the Supreme Judicial Court stays the order, the ban could stay in place through Christmas Eve. It could end up lifted on only for medical marijuana patients. There's a lot of uh, a lot that could still happen, and, and basically what the commission said was they want to let some of that play out and ensure that their executive director has authority to respond as, as he sees fit. And we don't yet know when we might hear from the court uh, regarding a stay. Right, that mm. could be sometime today, could be on Tuesday itself. We're mm -hmm. really not sure. Sure. And we did uh, have a report this week of the third confirmed vaping death in Massachusetts or vaping-related illness death in Massachusetts from the Department of Public Health. Uh, and this is the first out of these three that has explicitly named uh, THC vaping products, whereas the other two were just uh, nicotine, right? Yeah, that's right. And it's... Um Certainly a small sample size, only three here in Massachusetts, yeah. but that runs counter to the trend that uh, you can see in the national numbers where a majority of uh, of the people who have died of these vaping-related illnesses uh, have said that they have reported uh, vaping THC in addition to nicotine. Well, and briefly, I know we talked a lot about uh, flavors last week, flavored tobacco products. Uh, there was a big update. Uh, this week from Juul and that they're going to pull their mint Juul pod products off the shelves. Uh, they'll still make menthol um, for, for now. This week, Colin, we had a, a repeat of um, a, a rally uh, by convenience store owners. We had a similar rally last week uh, protesting any proposed bans on these menthol tobacco products. Uh, they actually closed down a bunch of their stores in the Boston area. Yeah, it was a bit of an escalation from uh, last week's rally uh, where uh, 
more than 100 convenience store owners closed the doors to their stores uh, all day on Wednesday. Uh, they had signs up in the store windows explaining that they were closed in protest of uh, any regulation that would uh, n- not allow them to sell menthol cigarettes. Uh, and the signs uh, asked their customers to contact uh, Boston Mayor Marty Walsh. There's some uh, regulations going through at the city level. Uh, House Speaker Robert DeLeo and Senate President Karen Spilka to tell them to keep uh, a ban on menthol cigarettes out of any uh, vaping or tobacco or flavored tobacco bill that they might take up. Well, thanks, Colin. And uh, this week also included Election Day. Uh, it was a municipal election day in a lot of communities around Massachusetts. And uh, we've got some departures or some uh, personnel changes coming up here on Beacon Hill. Uh, since there are, uh, it seems, three lawmakers leaving the Hill to go serve back in their districts in, in their city and town halls. And Colin, uh, they're joining uh, Senator DiMacito, who we already knew was leaving for a, another job off, off the Hill. Um, what are we hearing about special elections or anything like that? Well, you're right, Sam. There are going to be uh, uh, three new mayors coming from the legislature. Uh, Senator Don Hummison will be the new mayor of Westfield. Rep. Shauna O'Connell will be the new mayor of Taunton. And Rep. Paul Broder will be the new mayor of Melrose. Um, no dates have yet been been set for their special elections. Uh, typically, the House Speaker and Senate President wait until they get the uh, formal resignation letters uh, so they know exactly what uh, which day will be each legislator's last before scheduling them. Uh, but it it is sort of looking like there will be uh, special elections around the state uh, that coincide with the March 3rd uh, presidential primary, Super Tuesday. Yeah, and so one of those uh, reps who's leaving, Rep Brodeur, uh, is actually a chairman of the... Uh, Committee on uh, Labor and Workforce Development. That one. So there's a chairmanship opening up, too. Exactly. That'll be uh, up to uh, Speaker DeLeo to fill. Uh, Matt, there were a lot of wins notched for candidates that were backed by uh, that new super PAC that you've been writing about for us, the Mass Majority Super PAC. Um, that I think we talked about that last week. It's uh, got some links to uh, Governor Charlie Baker. Um, they had a pretty good success rate for the races they were involved in on Tuesday. Yeah, Massachusetts Majority, uh, a brand new super PAC that was formed in May. So this is its first uh, election cycle. And uh, you're right, we did some reporting on this last week running uh, up into uh, Election Day on Tuesday. And the super PAC had raised close to a million dollars and spent uh, over $267,000 to support 15 of these local candidates. And uh, after the dust settled on Tuesday, 11 of those candidates had won, uh, including uh, Senator Hummison, uh, who uh, was in a tight race. I think that was ultimately decided by uh, less than 100 votes or, or in and around there out in Westfield. Uh, close to $20,000 spent by the Super PAC to help Hummison. Sean O'Connell received uh, support as well. Uh, the Brodor race, actually, uh, they spent, uh, the Super PAC spent money to support his opponent, Monica Medeiros, in, in Melrose. So that was one of the four that they lost, along with, uh, you know, the Amesbury mayoral race and, and a couple of others. But uh, overall, they showed uh, that they were uh, at least picking winners. Uh, you know, you can't quantitatively prove that they were able to swing it. So besides uh, Medeiros, the, the one you mentioned who uh, lost to Rep Brodeur up in Melrose, uh, who else were they backing who didn't come out on top Tuesday? 
Yes, yeah, so uh, you know the former Mass GOP chairwoman Jen Nassour, who's a you know been a, a close ally of Baker's, it was running for a city council here in Boston uh, on Beacon Hill. Actually, she uh, did not prevail on Tuesday. Neither did uh, the mayor of Amesbury, Ken Gray, uh, or uh, the Republican who was running uh, in Attleboro against uh, former state rep Paul Haro, and Haro was able to secure another victory uh, and another term as mayor in that. City. So those were the four races that they lost. But, you know, they they backed uh, the Super PAC backed a number of candidates in both the mayoral level as well as city council. People like, uh, you know, Janet Lee and Bruno in Framingham was able to get a seat. Donna Calorio in Worcester was the biggest recipient of cash actually from the Super PAC. Oh, she, really? she won a seat on the Worcester City Council. How and much they did were, she get? Yeah. Uh, she if I remember correctly, she received close to about thirty thousand hmm. dollars from the super PAC. I think it was in the neighborhood of twenty eight, twenty nine thousand, and uh, and there weren't just Republicans; there were Democrats as well as Republicans. Uh, you know, uh, probably more on the GOP side, but people like uh, Springfield Mayor Dominic Sarno got support, uh, Fitchburg Mayor Steve DiNatale, and they were uh, all all reelected. You m- you mentioned uh, Jen Nasur, the former Mass GOP chair, and I would note briefly for the takeout audience, if if you didn't see it uh, this week, that. Former GOP chair uh, Kirsten Hughes was uh, nominated this week. Speaking of personnel changes for a Stoneham District Court, right? Clerk magistrate? Stoughton? Stoneham? Stoughton. 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 There's a, a north versus south issue there. Yeah. North Shore, South Shore? North Shore, well, yeah, well, sort of. Yeah, uh, sort of, kind of. Um, Hey, and also speaking of personnel changes, uh, we shouldn't uh, let this podcast go by without noting uh, the news on Kerry Gilpin this week. Yes, yeah, State Police Colonel Kerry Gilpin uh, announcing that I think you know basically two years to the day that she was appointed by uh, Governor Baker to lead the state police at a particularly difficult time for that agency as they've uh, gone through a, a number of. Uh, controversies with regards to Troop E and uh, fixing traffic tickets and things like that. Um, she is stepping down uh, actually relatively quickly. She's leaving, uh, I believe, next week. Uh, we don't yet know who uh, the governor is going to pick for a permanent replacement, but uh, her retirement coming. And, you know, she's just, uh, I think, what, 49 years old? Yeah. I mean, she's she's pretty young, but, uh, you know, state, state police often get to retire um, earlier and qualify for their pensions, and she's getting out after, after two Two years in in what is uh, undoubtedly a very difficult job. Sure, and the governor Colin this week said that uh, there's still more work that he wants to do with reforming the state police. And um, as far as who he picks for a successor for Gilpin, or, uh, he mentioned that we'll be seeing some reform packages coming from him soon. Um, what what might we see there? Yeah, he said that uh, he would have some more to say on. Uh Colonel Gilpin's successor in the next few days, uh, but he also su- uh, said that he would be filing uh, with the legislature a package of reforms related to the state police. One thing we can expect to see in that package um, is uh, the ability for the governor to go outside of the state Massachusetts state police ranks to pick the colonel slash superintendent. Uh, right now, it has to be someone who is already uh, within the Mass State Police ranks. Uh, the governor has mentioned before he'd like the ability to hire someone else, another law enforcement uh, person. He's, he's said it's important that the colonel of the state police be someone who has you know, done the job, who's been uh, uh, sort of a patrol officer, if you will, uh, you know, has experience on the ground. Uh, but he'd like to be able to look outside of uh, the agency, maybe uh, 
maybe would have a better chance of finding someone who could uh, sort of be a, a change agent. Briefly before we close out, and I wish we had more time to dive into rail because we had a lot of themes this week or a lot of threads going on from a lot of different angles on commuter rail and regional rail, uh, Chris, and, and you, you covered a lot of that, Colin, you covered some of that too. Um, it all started off on Monday, Chris, at a T-board meeting where, wow, just a, a whole roadmap's been laid out for this regional rail future, electrified rail and uh, dealing with parking spaces and, and station connections and all the rest of it. Uh, what's the vision and what's the timeline for it? A little bit of a roadmap. Uh, we still don't have a clear timeline, nor a clear cost estimate, <laughs> nor a clear idea of how to pay for whatever that cost estimate will be. But it all sounds so nice. But don't don't let that undersell what the significance here is, because yes, the T-Board did vote unanimously on motions, explicitly instructing T-Staff, the general manager's office, to transform the future of the commuter rail into a largely electrified system, which it currently is not, and on the most dense corridors to run trains 15 or 20 minutes in each direction whenever possible, which is far more frequently than they run right now. Uh, so this would be a, a pretty significant transformation, and they're eyeing some short-term improvements too, calling for electric vehicles to start running on the Newburyport-Rockport line between Boston and Lynn, on the Fairmont line, and on the, uh, the province and Stoughton line um, within the near sh- near term future. So, and those are sort of like uh, pilot programs, right, for the electric uh, rail cars. Right. They they want that to be a pilot program, sort of as the the first real substantial steps toward this long term uh, transformation of the T. This is probably going to be a, a decades long enterprise, at least in the large scale. When we're talking about electrifying the entire system. Um, you know, the, the Rail Vision Advisory Committee that was tasked with studying how we might get to this end goal figured that it would cost somewhere in the neighborhood of 20 to 30 billion to electrify the entire system and run trains every 15 minutes and connect North Station and South Station. So we don't have a final cost estimate, but we know it's going to be expensive. We know it's going to take a long time, but the hope is that that boosts ridership by hundreds of thousands of people and cuts down on greenhouse gas emissions and helps us deal with that roadway congestion that we're all uh, pulling our hair out about. Always. Um, I think I think the Herald front page uh, the day after that vote or that series of votes was something like new big dig question mark. Is, is that a fair comparison? Possibly, you know, because this could be as major as that. This could be somewhere in the same ballpark in terms of cost and time invested in it. What we still don't know, which is why I hesitate with that comparison, is mm-hmm. you know how exactly we're going to get from point A to point B here. All we know is that the T is going to come back in about three months with an office, uh, a new rail transformation office and a complementary bus transformation office that's going to be responsible for managing this project. But we don't even know when these three pilot programs for electric trains are going to go into effect, let alone when we're going to get around to running trains every 15 minutes between Worcester and Boston. Mm. And I thought one of the most interesting stories this week, speaking of this this vision, right, that they've endorsed, uh, is a lot of folks pointing back to, or at least uh, former T General Manager Brian Shortsleeve, who's a member of the board, and Governor Baker, uh, pointing back to a state senator's blog post about his vision for the rail system. Avid bicyclist, uh, Will Brownsberger of Belmont. Um, uh, what, what did they like so much that he had to blog about? 
Yeah, they thought that uh, Senator Brownsberger's post uh, Brown's blogger, Brown, Senator Brown's blogger. Yes, mm-hmm. that is that is the proper way to address <laughs> him here. Uh, you know, in his post, he sat on this committee that studied the these options for more than a year, which I think is worth noting. And his big argument was that, you know. The commuter rail does need investment. It does need changes, but that it would be irresponsible to try and put every 15-minute service on every single train line in both directions at all times of day because it wouldn't all get used as much. If you run a more frequent trains between the most densely packed corridors, then sure, that's going to have a lot of riders. But in some areas, the addition of trains wouldn't be worth it and might even have a negative environmental impact uh, when you kind of crunch the numbers and get all the way down to a base level. So basically, he was advocating a, a strategic approach to this, a data-driven approach to this. And that seems to have resonated both with, you know, Brian Shortsleeve on the T-board and with the governor who, two different times speaking with reporters after the board's vote, explicitly instructed us to go read uh, Senator Brownsberger's blog as sort of the the best iteration of uh, how we should be thinking about this. It is a pretty informative blog. I, I've been meaning to check it out more frequently, I'll say. It writes about a lot of different issues on yeah, there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, all right, well, that's all the time we have for this week. But thank you, as always, for coming to the Takeout Table. And we'll see you next week. See ya. Statehouse Takeout is a production of the Statehouse News Service. And for a daily fix of Statehouse headlines, visit masterlist.com. Masterlist with two S's. Thanks again for listening. See you next week.